Hello, Rugby Pod listeners. It's Jim here. You know who it is. I don't know why I've put on that posh, important accent. But we've got something a little bit different for you this week. As most of you know, I spent some of the best years of my rugby career, of my life, at Sarri's. So the club is very close to my heart. Obviously, there's been some big news around Saracens in the last couple of years, around the salary cap, and arguably one of the biggest scandals in the history of rugby. But I got to speak to their head honcho and chairman, Neil Golden, to hear what's changed at the club and what the club looks like going forward. We talk about the salary cap, of course we do, player development, and also where the game's going. Hopefully, this is something we'll do more of going forward. So if you enjoy it, send us a tweet, share it, or let us know who you'd like to hear from next. Rugby Spot. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Neil Golding, Saracen's chairman. We're here on a rugby pod special. I say welcome. This is a new setup for me. It's quite official, isn't it? But welcome. Um, first time doing a podcast? It's my very first time. I've only ever listened to listened to one and never done one. So, yes, my first time, Jim. Thank you. Yeah, this is the new age media. And for me, it's actually quite nerve-wracking for me. I've not been out the house. I, we were just obviously chatting off air. Uh, most of my stuff is done virtually on Zoom. But the rugby pod, we are out the house and we're in a studio in London. So it's great to chat to you. And it's great that... Am I the first person you've spoken to properly about Correct. the that's new right. look of Saracens? That's right, yeah. That's an absolute honour, an yeah, ex-player. Well, it's, it's, it's nice to be here, yeah, thank yeah, you. Of course. I need to be very measured in terms of what we talk about because a lot of people that would listen to the podcast or <clears throat> a lot of people that yeah. know me know how much I love the club of Saracens, um, know how highly I speak of the club, but I've probably got to be quite balanced about what we talk about because I think there are still kind of a few questions out there about the past and about moving forward. And I know that the club obviously want to get that out there. Hence yeah, why no, that, I, that, I, that's I, understood, Jim. Thanks, yeah. no problem. Yeah, so it's great that we're, we're, we've been able to chat. Let's talk about the season. Okay. Good start. Very good start, yeah. I mean, Bristol was amazing. Um, you know, very, very good team last year. I went down to the game in Bristol. Um, fantastic start. Leicester was a bit disappointing mm. to lose like that. I mean, sort of quite on Saracens like to blow a lead. Um that last sort of couple of minutes were very disappointing and the players were quite cross with themselves. Um, and then a really good comeback against Newcastle, who were, seemed to be doing better. So, um, yeah, <clears throat> pretty good start all around. Yeah, and what's your relationship with rugby? Have you got a history of rugby? Have well, you played a bit? I, or? No, I think I must be pretty much unique amongst uh, people, certainly chairman or people involved in rugby, because I've never played a game in my life. And when I came to London in 1990, straight out of law school, I... Um, I barely knew the difference between league and union. Um, but where I worked, there were loads of good rugby players. It was quite a thing. So I started watching it quite a bit. And then through the World Cups in 91, 95, um, started following Saracens a bit because they were, I'm a North London boy. They were always kind of my team. Um, you know, I'm half Irish. We've now got the benches over in the Aviva. So um, just sort of evolved over the last 30 years, really. But no, no background prior to 1990 at all. Yeah, great. Well, let's just talk about your new role at the club. You came in, I'm going to say a point of crisis, but we can maybe talk about your 
history working in crises. But what is your role at Saracens? Because you've got the, the label of Saracens chairman. Other clubs would have CEO, yeah. director of rugby, owner. If we can just get a kind of broad outline of what your role is and how you came to be in that role in what was not just a tough time at Saracens, but in the world of rugby. Tough time all around, yeah. So um, the background to it is that I, um, as I say, sort of got into rugby gradually from the 90 onwards. Um, and for sort of five years ago, maybe got season tickets up at Tarry's. Um, and then this year, oh, sorry, um, it was right after the World Cup final, actually, because I remember very clearly um, at the pretty awful journey back fly, flying via Seoul and then Hong Kong. So I arrived pretty knackered and frankly, pretty hungover. And that was the day the 35 point thing came out. So I got in touch with a couple of people now at the club and said, look, I mean, if you wanted to tighten up your corporate governance, um, there's a couple of people I know who could help wasn't thinking of me at all. I've got a couple of friends who are um, judges, um, retired judges, uh, and if you put them on the board, it'd be quite hard for people to say they didn't add some serious credibility to it. So um, that led to, first of all, me being asked to be a director, which I was happy to do. And then um, around Christmas time, so Christmas time, what were we, 19? Yeah, we've lost a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, we? Christmas time, 19. Just asked to be um, chairman. So, um Stepped up there in, in January as the, the non-executive chairman. Uh, and that was that, really. And the word crisis and scandal and all these kind of big words have been thrown about. And we were chatting um, off-air about your role in rugby, but also your past and your history mm. of dealing with crisis. Yeah. Um, just give us a kind of snapshot of that. Because I think, again, being on the inner circle of rugby, but now for me being outside of that circle and having a broader kind of look on life you know rugby is very small you know it's very niche in some parts and the saracens scandal seems so big for people in that circle but for someone like you who's been involved in bigger crises if that's the word if you can give the listeners yeah, I mean, an I, idea of what you've done i think i think it was sort of accidentally quite um but whatever skills i've got from the day job it was quite handy because um i'm um, a solicitor as i mentioned but also specialize in restructuring cases and generally if you're in restructuring um, people only really want to talk to you if they've got a, a legal problem, a regulatory problem or a financial problem or all three. So I'm kind of quite used to dealing with companies who have got problems. Um, I mean, it's no secret that, you know, the most recent big thing I was working on for quite a few years was, you know, the whole Arcadia Topshop thing, which was clearly pretty high profile, you know, BHS and then Topshop. I mean, so we were, you know, quite used to being in a, in a sort of feel like stressful situation. So um, moving into Saris was really just like more of the same from the day job, frankly. And before that, was there, there was a couple of other high profile. Oh, yeah, I mean, places. I've worked on, you know, I've been doing this stuff for 30 years now. So, I mean, I've, you know, all sorts of things. Northern Rock back in 2007 before it was nationalised. Um, Icelandic banks, Lehman Brothers, you know, it, it's a, I work in quite a big firm in the city. So we only tend to really be involved in big bigger cases rather than the sort of smaller and medium sized ones. So, you know, I've been very lucky to be working on quite a few um, big matters over the last um, 20 years as a partner. Of course. And when you came into Saracens then and you looked at the lay of the land that was there and you obviously gave an outside opinion on the club needing help and then obviously got brought in properly to look at that. What did it look like when you got to well, the club? It, it, it was pretty obvious that, that we needed to tidy up the corporate governance. And, and that's, what, what does that mean? What, what does the... Well, 
corporate governance. Um, you know, we just need to be more rigorous about basically um, board meetings, you know, making sure we were complying with the rules. I mean, right at the get-go, when I was asked to do the job, <clears throat> I um, I said to anyone who'd listen, so I had a call with, I had a meeting with Nigel, with Lucy Ray, Dominic Sylvester, Mark McCall, you know, pretty much anyone who was in any sort of position at the club and said to them that um, I could only possibly ever contemplate doing the job if we were going to be whiter than white going forward. Mm. I mean, forget the history, because that was, you know, point crying over spilt milk, really. Um, I said I would only ever be able to do it if we were going to be the sort of poster children for corporate governance going forward. And everyone seemed quite happy with that as a as a proposition. And, and that's really what we've tried to, well, what I don't think tried, that's what we have um, put into practice since January 20. Yeah, well, well, we'll look forward in a minute, but we, I think we have to go back and look at what happened. Uh, I think naturally the listeners probably need reminding, but we have to go over a little bit of old ground. So £5.36 million fine for Saracens. There initially was a 35-point deduction, yeah. which was then increased, yeah. um, which resulted in the club being relegated and everything yep. that we've kind of seen now the books uh, being looked at in in depth. But mainly, I think, from my point of view, having been a player in some amazing times at Saracens, two premierships with myself and two European Cups, but almost a tarnished name in that sense. When you look at it now and you look at what's happened and gone before, and we have to talk about it because this will probably take us going forward. Do you think what happened to the club was fair? Again, looking at some of the, co- the quotes, I won't say who they are, people will know, but Saracens should have t- had their titles taken away. Their name should have been taken off the premiership trophies for the seasons that um, they won and we were in breach of the cap. Saracens have ruined lives of rivals. Saracens should have been stripped of titles. Saracens the villain. So all this stuff was being thrown around. Yeah. And some people think that what happened and what the club were doing wasn't enough of having a fine and being relegated because they knew they'd bounce straight back up and arguably people have got an open checkbook so it didn't really matter. Yeah. So again, looking back before we look forward, do you think it was fair with that? Or well, do you- I mean, the the way it came about was that the, rele- the, the, the whole relegation thing was agreed with Premier Rugby, right? So it wasn't as if Saracens just said, you know, I didn't just select the punishment and if people didn't like it, that was bad luck. It was part of a quite a fairly um, detailed discussion with Premier Rugby um, you know, people can take their own view on the severity or otherwise of the punishments. I mean, I, I think it was pretty serious myself because, you know, a year of being relegated, it's all very well now saying with hindsight, oh, well, you bounce back, right? But you get relegated, straight afterwards we have COVID. You know, there was no guarantee we were going to be able to keep the squad together. You know, as it turned out, the players have shown tremendous amounts of loyalty. But, you know, you take, you know, Max Malins and Ben Earl and Nick Ezequa, you know, the guys who went out on loan to other clubs, you know... They came back, but, you know, if what are we saying? We should have been relegated for two years, three years, four years. I mean, if people think Saracen should have been punished out of existence, they can think that if they like. But, you know, my view is that it was pretty serious punishment. And if you add on to the fact that then COVID kind of made it worse because, you know, you're relegated to the championship. And as I'm sure most readers will recollect, <clears throat> the championship, there was no guarantee there would even be one, mm. right? So question, how do you get promoted out of something that doesn't exist? So for me, that was almost the most um, difficult time when the Premiership had restarted, albeit with no crowds, in September. Um, and we were just in limbo, you know, with the Championship clubs in very difficult financial position. No um, guarantee the Championship would even start. Then it starts. It's a 10-game season. I mean, frankly, over a 20 or 25-game season, you, you sort of back Saracens to think, well, we've got a sufficiently good team to come up. 
10-game season, no margin for error, first away game, Cornwall, we lose. Mm. So total nightmare, right? So as I say, people can have their own views on the severity of the punishment, but I, you know, I think it was pretty significant myself. Um, and it, it wasn't the kind of unilateral thing. It was part of a negotiation. And do you think everyone took accountability who needed to? I know Nigel Ray fell on the sword. And again, I speak of Nigel Ray with such admiration for the man. And when I say that, that would annoy some people. Yeah. Because a lot of people blame Nigel Ray. And there was obviously more layers underneath him. But do you think everyone's taken accountability for what's happened? Because Nigel Ray's ultimately fell on the sword. Yeah. That, I mean, Nigel, you know, I don't know if you saw the latest article in the rugby paper from Sunday. You know, there's a big double page spread about how much Nigel's done for rugby. And again, you know, people can take their own views on, on Nigel. I mean, you know, I know him obviously very well now. And um, I think overall, the amount he's contributed, not just to Saracens rugby, but the broader Saracens community has been, you know, immense. Um, but Nigel did take, um, as you say, fall on his sword. And he's had no um, executive role in the club since I started. And, you know, given the new deal, which we'll no doubt come on to, um, as you've seen from the press release, Nigel has confirmed that, Although he's going to be a shareholder, it's a it's a passive role, and he's going to return to being a fan, albeit a a super fan, and a high profile fan. Because all the games that we've seen, yep. that have been on TV, yep. they've panned up to yeah, the box. Well, it's, like, it's almost like nothing's changed. No, well, I don't agree with that. I mean, it, I think everything's changed. Um, you know, it, well, it had changed before in the in Nigel's role, in the sense that, as I say, he had had zero executive responsibility um, from January twenty zero. Um, so I think that's an important point to make. And secondly, in the light of this new refinancing, I think his role has changed again. So again, if people sort of think, oh, this is all just a, it's just sort of same old, same old. I mean, that's absolutely not the case. I mean, yeah. it's a very different um, situation in Saracens now. And what can you give us a kind of snapshot of Nigel Ray's in involvement then? So a passive shareholder well, was, was the quote it's a, it's a Nigel the minority shareholder and he's a fan end yeah. of I mean he's not a director he's not I mean he's exactly what it says on the tin he's a minority shareholder and he's a super fan and you know his contribution to the club over time has been huge but that's um, you know that's in the past and we've we've moved on a bit of course other questions that are out there in the public domain that I need to ask a Saracen still operating under or on the salary cap? And I ask that again, the perception will be, you look at the profile of the team, you've got Mako, Bonapola, Jamie George, Vincent Cox, so you've got two England, British and Irish Lions, mm. you've got a South African World Cup winning tight head, you've got one of the highest profile players in the world of Marutoji, you've got Nick Azikwe, who's come back from Northampton, who's a cap player, Ben Earl coming back from Bristol, who is now an established international some might say Billy Vanapola. Do you know what I mean? So I can carry on with the list. Owen Farrell, obviously, yeah, Nick, yeah, Nick yeah, Tompkins, no, Welsh yeah. International, Sean Maitland, yeah. Scotland, British and Irish Lions, like Alex Good has come back into the mix. Uh, Elliot Daly, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. British and Irish. So a lot of people are going to be saying, how are Saracens still operating under yeah. that? Yeah. And that's out there in the public domain by looking at the profile of the team. A lot of people want Saracens to bounce back because I think rugby, European rugby, Premiership rugby is significantly better with them. But I've got to ask that difficult question. When well, you look I, at I, I, I mean, to be honest, Jim, I don't think that's a difficult question at all. I think it's, I mean, I don't mean to sound rude. I think it's a pretty easy question. Um, I mean, I think to answer really in two parts. Number one, as I mentioned before, from the club's perspective, any more salary cap nonsense would be, I mean, doubly disastrous, right? I mean, it's all been, already been a bit messy, to say the least. 
So as I said at the start, spoke to everybody and said, we are only doing this job if we are now going to be the poster children. And what that has meant in practice is that we have um, a Southern Cup committee. Um, I sit on that. It's chaired by an XPWC partner, a very senior XPWC partner who knows his business. Um, and we've got um, the finance director of the club as well. Um, and uh, we've laboured the point. We've had training for the employee, we've had training for the players. We've got the new Lord Miner's salary cap stuff. Um, we've had conversations with Andrew Rogers, who listeners may know is the salary cap director now. And it's really not that difficult. Basically, if you have any questions about anything at all, ask Vic or Kerry, who were the, the accountants and the, sorry, the PwC guy and the finance director I mentioned. If in doubt, ask. And if they're in any doubt, ask Andrew Rogers before we do anything. Before you buy Mario Watoji a cup of coffee or Owen Farrell a round of golf, let's just be squeaky clean about that, right? So that's the club's position. Leave aside the club. Um, I mean, frankly, from my own perspective, right? Um, you know, I'm a solicitor. I've been in the same firm for 31 years. It's a pretty respectable firm. You know, it's what the journalists call the magic circle. The firm's actually been around since about 1740. So I quite like teasing my American wife by the fact that Freshfields is older than America. Um, the idea that I've got any interest in a headline which says Freshfield partner Golding in salary cap scandal is complete BS. I mean, I just cannot tell you how inconceivable that idea is to me. I mean, it is never going to happen. End of. Because you said something there around the salary cap nonsense. Some might argue on the inside, and I've been on the inside and have argued this case on the rugby pod with Goody around these co-investments, around the investment in Marutoji and the Vunapola brothers and Richard Wigglesworth's image rights accounts. Was that really breaking the salary cap? Are you allowed to do that? Or was it a loophole that wasn't formalised? Because again, I've got to say from being on the inside, Neil, as in we were never told to be quiet about that. If there was a business opportunity and we went to Nigel or we went to the club, it had to be a bit, it couldn't be, oh, mate, is there a way that you can pay us under the table, please? Or mm. is there a way of, you know, getting this 100 grand paid in a different way? Everything that I, that I saw when I was there was smart, in my opinion. These, you mm. know, the, the, the co investments, the stuff that is now out there in the, in, in the public domain. And we can get onto the Marutoji image rights, which was invested at 1.5 million or whatever. I mean, that's a bloody steal when you look at it now, what's gone on. But was that part of the scandal? Well, you know, is that, can you do that or not? Because people wanted to join Saracens and stay at Saracens because of that added opportunity to have that, you know? Mm. So why is that, why was that a bad thing? Well, look, I mean, I, I wasn't there at the time. Um, so, you know, others, probably you included, may have a more of a handle on what was actually going on. I think regardless of the of the, the the deals themselves, there's no doubt that if they'd been notified and discussed with Andrew Rogers, things might have been different. But the fact is they weren't. So that's that. You know, we can't sort of put the toothpaste back in the tube, right? I mean, we have a different regime now where before the toothpaste comes out of the tube, we ask Andrew Rogers if we need to. Um, you know, the new rules are pretty complicated. Um, I don't know how closely you followed them, but they are pretty complex based on some really good work by Paul Miners. And and now it's relatively simple. If you're in any doubt, just make sure that Andrew Rogers okays any, anything you're not sure about. So would you be allowed to co-invest? So let's talk about Marutoji because <clears throat> I, I was going to say the poor bloke, he's not poor because the numbers are out there in the public domain, but his name was obviously thrown into the mix, high profile, yeah. 
England rugby player. Uh, the club bought into his image rights and bought a share of his image rights, which yep. again, was, was, I just said a bit tongue-in-cheek, but actually it's arguably the investment of the century in rugby. Mm. If you look at where Maratoji can potentially go, would that be allowed now? Oh, I think so. If So long as, um, uh, as I say, if, you know, let's take... Forget let the Marrow deal has been done. Let's say a you know a nineteen year old academy kid comes through who's the next Marrow Atoje. If I or anybody else wanted to buy a share of his image rights, uh, I would first of all discuss it with Vic, um, the salary cap, um, the, the chair of the salary cap committee. And if he thought it was crystal clear, we'd do it. And if he thought it was needed to be discussed with Andrew Rogers, we discuss it with Andrew Rogers. It's that simple, really. You know, the rules, as I say, are very complicated. They cover ex-players, they cover prohibited salaries, excluded items, all sorts of things. Um, but the basic underlying principle is let's just stay well on the right side of the line. And if we're getting nearer to something which isn't entirely clear, let's get clearance in advance before we um, do anything. Because I think any club that produces young English talent, like mm. Saracens have, in the last few years, it almost becomes a hindrance. So you, th- you look at the Saracens team now, and there's a number of other teams that are going to be, and I know other teams would have had to have got, get rid of some of their great English players because they can't afford to keep them. What's the reward for producing British and Irish Lions players, England players? So you bring them through the academy, you invest in them from an early stage, you're paying them an anomalous amount, putting them through university, and all these things which you expect young players to get. There's going to be a point when they play for England that they become a quarter of a million pound player and that's their bottom book value. So where's where's the reward for that? Again, it, like, it, is there? Because this is obviously something that I'm sure Saracens, you know, your Exeters, Harlequins now, Leicester will be looking at. They've got a lot, mm. lot of good young lads coming through. What's the point in developing these players in to become top-level internationals when ultimately at the end of the road you're not going to be able to afford to keep them? Well, you, I mean, you, you, I think you raise a really good point. I mean, take a really extreme example. Forget Saracens, take Leicester, say. Let's say they have 23 kids who are all amazing and all at once come through and Eddie Jones picks all 23 of them for the England squad. No one else gets a look in. So Leicester are now paying out a fortune for a whole load of players that they've developed since the age of 14 who all bugger off to play for England. Leicester don't get back the full amount of money that they're paying their salaries, they get something back from England, but not the full amount. So how does that system make any sense? Not just for Saracens, for Exeter or whoever. So that was one thing that really surprised me when I came into it, because I didn't fully appreciate how the remuneration worked. And, um, you know, I think it was the 2019 season. I think Owen only played for us eight times because of autumn internationals, um, build up, playing, rest, uh, rest afterwards, um, build up to the Canadian Six Nations, rest afterwards. So fine, you get him on full stream in April, but not for a significant part of the rest of the season. And, you know, the same goes for any of these, you know, Marcus Smith and all these guys are going to be in the same position. So I, I don't know quite what the answer to that is. Obviously, some countries have central contracting and whatever, but I don't know quite how that would all work. I can see the point you're making about, you know, if you just hire in overseas people who don't get snaffled, on one view it makes more sense although I think there's a sort of brand value for Saracens having uh, in our case some you know some very high profile players just as Quinns will no doubt reap the benefit if some of their younger guys start to get the same profile yeah of course and that brings me on to talk about the salary cap I mean it was up at seven million pounds mm. and off the back of that you could have two marquee players yeah am I right in saying it's now at five million yes, yes. so they've reduced the salary cap yes so they've reduced the earning potential of players. Uh, there's obviously credits 
as yes. well that are put in place for injured players. How do you operate in a salary cap like that? Not just Saracens, rugby in general. And I say that because the top 14 is 10.5 million. That's been reduced as well. Um, I had a, a chat last night with Martin and I from the URC. There isn't even a salary cap mm. in the United Rugby Championship. Yeah. So really, you look at now the amount of rugby that the players need to play, the yep. international, the fact that there's no joined up global calendar, your salary cap is £2 million less. Players are expecting more money. How do we expect premiership teams to now compete with the top 14 or even the URC with the Leinsters mm. that don't have a salary cap? Yeah. Just from your point of view, as in being yeah. the chairman, because yeah, you're yeah. obviously at the cold face of these big decisions. Mm. I'm personally thinking about the growth of the game. Yeah. I want to see players get paid as much money. I've played the game. Yeah. It's a it's a bloody tough sport. Yeah, yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? You need to maximise that. But now it's almost like, I don't know whether Saracens and the salary situation accelerated that or COVID accelerated the, think, the, the, the uh, decrease in, in I, I salary think, cap. I, I mean, if you step back from it, I think I'm right in saying that all clubs, with the possible exception of Exeter, who just about break even, lose money mm. year on year. If you went along to you know, Harvard Business School or McKinsey or somebody and said, is this a sustainable business model? You know, you just need to rely on whether it's Nigel or whoever else writing your cheque for two or three million pounds forever. That's not really going to work, right? I don't think you need to be a business genius to figure that out. So there was already, I think, pre-COVID some pressure to kind of balance the books better. And I think COVID just exacerbated that because, um, you know, the owners um, have done it, I think, collectively a pretty amazing job at supporting the clubs through COVID. I mean, it wasn't just the owners, there was government loans as well, which I think were essential to, frankly, ensuring some club survival. But it's really not a sustainable model to just expect whichever um, entrepreneur or businessman to just keep writing a cheque each year. You don't think it is? See, I, I think for me personally, the, the growth, and you've seen this obviously in football, it's a survival of the richest. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it really is. You look at Newcastle yeah, yeah, now; yeah. they've been bought out, and it's all about money. Yeah. New coach, best players. I know football is a completely different model commercially. I completely get that, but is the growth of the game not about well, no, inve- investment? I, I, I think. I think. Well, I think there's a number of aspects of growth of the game, isn't there? I mean, if you look at say where CVC are at, um, I think the idea, um, you know, their publicly stated idea is to try to grow the game across the board. Um, and if that can be um, figured out, I don't think the intention is just for the clubs, for the owners to just keep all the money and the players get paid the same forever. You know, if the game can be grown, you know, with better TV rights and better um, income commercially, um, I'm sure quite a lot of that will, will trickle down to the players. You know, I, I don't think this is sort of set in stone forever. All this stuff needs to be discussed going forward. But just as things stand, just year on year on year on year, writing a cheque, writing a, writing a cheque, you know, especially post-COVID, just doesn't seem to me to be particularly credible. And, you know, I think clubs are quite keen to be able to get onto a level playing field and grow the game, and then we'll see what we get to in terms of players' pay. Because one thing which is obvious, I think, is that um, Premier Rugby can't afford to be losing its top stars to Japan and France because, you know, one or two people go, that's fine. But if you have swathes of people leaving, um, the product becomes less attractive. Yeah, absolutely. So back to the question around Europe. Are Premiership clubs now expected to compete in Europe with Saracens now? With There is obviously a change of the squad, but I still spoke about some of the top players. Mm. Expected to compete with Toulon, 
Toulouse, oh, I think Clermont, so. I, Racing. I, I think so. I mean, I guess the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. But, I mean, not many players have left, have they? I mean, I'm not conscious. I mean, some have gone. Mm. But, I mean, it's not as if um, we've had the top 15, 20 players in the Premier League um, all going overseas. Um, you know, the odd person's gone. I'm sure between us we could probably name maybe half a dozen. But it's not been you know, a huge uh, outflux of people saying, right, I'm off to make millions in France and um, I don't care about my England career. I think we'll see how this season goes, this season, next season, but I would have hoped that the clubs, English clubs could still compete. So that brings me on to the question around the new ownership. Why would anyone buy a rugby club now? Um, Well, as I was saying before, on one view, it's not a particularly sensible um, business proposition because you're buying into a loss-making business. Um, on another view, um, you know, Saracens is a great brand. Um, rugby, I think, is at a bit of a tipping point. Um, as I say, for lots of reasons, women's rugby, CBC's investment, you know, there's all sorts of sort of positive um, green shoots, if you like. So um, for the the people who are investing into Saracens, we're all sort of pretty committed to the club, if you like, emotionally. And, you know, the financial uh, investment kind of follows from that, really. And... Can you give us an outline of this custodium? It's such a word that, <laughs> no, the, that you know that's been put to the table because some people look at it and they'll be like, "And we saw the press release, and it it made out that there was a lot of change. There obviously is a lot of change. There has been a lot of change yeah. with, with now you fronting yeah. a lot of stuff going on with the club. But in terms of a snapshot of how it looks, obviously Francois Pina yeah. was a player at the club. He's yeah. got a relationship with Saracens, not just from playing at the club, but obviously the South African influence that was there a few years ago. Obviously, Dominic Sylvester as well, mm. uh, Nick Leslaw. So there still is a kind of old school element to it. But I'm really interested to hear about the investment in the club and the positives that I can see in that. The yeah. lo- the, you know, the location, the stadium was run down to hell when I was there, apart from one side of it. Yeah. You know, the fact that Saracens, being one of the best clubs in Europe, didn't have its own training facility. So I can, I can personally see the investment. I can see why someone would invest in the club. But maybe just a little bit on how the makeup of that board looks like, you know, what kind of things they're going to bring to the party and yeah. and how it's going to take yeah. the game forward, the club game. Yeah, well, there's half a dozen of us um, are in this consortium who've bought, um, who sort of basically acquired um, a majority stake. Um, the leader of the consortium, um, as we've said in the press release, is a guy called Dominic Sylvester. Dominic um, has been a very successful um, insurance entrepreneur, built up his own business, um, starting from scratch over like a 30-year period. Um, the other person in it, um, other people in it, um, Dominic's um, partner in business, Paul O'Shea, um, an Irish chap based in Bermuda. Francois needs no introduction. Nick Leslau is a, a successful property entrepreneur, chief exec of a listed company. And uh, Marco Mazzotti, is a partner in um, a New York, a very successful New York law firm called Paul Weiss, and as has been reported in the press, is also the majority owner of the Sharks in South Africa. And then um, bringing up the rear is, is me. So uh, hopefully, between the different sort of uh, skill sets and experience that everyone's got, we can bring something new to the party. And yeah, we've got some quite, you know, hopefully quite big plans now that the club is on a very solid financial footing. Um, the redevelopment of the stadium is going ahead. As you know, the, the new stand is, um, we'll have fans in by January and um, I think fully open by May. Um, longer term, we'd like to be able to, if you like, complete the stadium, you know, both ends of it without the temporary seating. And then the high performance centre is something which obviously is near to the players' hearts. And that's um, hopefully 
um, going to be a slightly more immediate thing. I mean, I'm not quite sure what immediate means, but we're, we're very much thinking about that. Um, I gather from the press that quite a few clubs, um, Bristol and Wasps, have really pushed the boat out on uh, in terms of their training facilities. So we wouldn't want to um, sort of fall behind on that. So that's something that we are actively thinking about. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. And where do you see the club going in the next five years then? I mean, th there was a part where they wanted to, Saracens wanted to try and globalise the game. There was clubs in different parts of the world that had the association with Saracens. Was that a bit smoke and mirrors? Is there any value in having that in terms of trying to grow the game? Or is the idea to try and cement an identity in the north of London, um, which is football, yeah. as we know? Um, because one of the big things around playing for Saracens was the lack of fans. Yeah. And I don't know what the reason for that was maybe it was the demographic maybe it was like people didn't like the brand of rugby that yeah. we played yeah. but is that the kind of idea in the short term is to try and grow the fan base because there's a lot of work to be done on that for a number of reasons yeah, yeah, but no. also you look at the the players that Saracens have got as well yeah no so I think that you know there's a number of bits to that I mean the first we've um, the coaches and the key players have all signed up on long-term contracts so you know they've shown a tremendous amount of loyalty through what was obviously a difficult period so in terms of the um the the sort of playing structure side of the club i think we're in great shape and in the immediate term obviously trying to get back to be able to compete in the the premier league and in, in europe is um you know that goes without saying i think longer term yeah part of the sort of broader aspirations, you know, growing the women's game, hopefully playing a part in the sort of general um, expansion of the of the sport as one of the, hopefully one of the leading clubs. Um, you know, that's not exclusively a Saracens thing, obviously. That will depend on, you know, the Premier League, with, you know, now with the new chief exec and as I say with CBC being involved. So I, I'm quite optimistic that um, aside from the immediate, if you like, day-to-day -day playing in the Premiership, the game could be um, as they had a bit of a tipping point to really kind of kick on. And what about individuals transcending the game? Sia Khaleesi, Chesson Colby, Maru Otoji. Yeah. And obviously Maru Otoji being yeah. the one with Saracens, yeah. England, British and Irish Lions, yeah. and everything that's around him. I personally see that as a positive. Yeah. 
some of the old guard might see rugby as a team sport and no individual is bigger than that team. But in order to grow the game, how much would you need to lean on someone like Marrow and his profile and this modern world that we live in around yeah. social media and media and the superficial context that, that lies about that to grow the game? Mm. Is that something in no, terms I think of forward so. thinking I, I as think well? I think so. I mean, I, I don't see... Myself, I don't see E.G. Marrow, but you know, let's take him as an example, or it could be Sia Khaleesi, but let's take Marrow. I don't see the fact that you know he was on the front page of the FT this weekend and presumably has like a gazillion followers online. <laughs> I mean, I don't do anything online, so I don't know. But it's a big thing. Yeah, no, well, I, yeah, I mean, it's huge. But I mean, I don't see uh, all of that stuff with with say Marrow um, as being inconsistent with being a team player, mm. because well, you know better than anyone if you're if you think you're kind of not going to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in. Rugby is not the sort of game where you can get away with being a bit of a prima, right? I mean, it's really not going to work for Marrow or anyone else. So I don't think there's any inconsistency myself between having a high profile um, and uh, being a key part of the team. But, you know, the demographic we could do with improving, right? Because rugby uh, isn't short of middle-aged men, uh-huh. right? We need um, a lot more younger, different demographic. And... Um, I think if social media can help fuel that, more power to its elbow. Yeah, absolutely. And Rock Nation have come in, so yes. that, that, that's yes. going against the ties slightly. I've had a, a couple of chats actually with Michael Yormark, yeah. uh, interesting guy. Well, you, really I mean, he, he's a very uh, dynamic individual, right? Dynamic's I mean, the word I was looking yeah, for. Dynamic. I mean, he's, um, you know, he he seems to get around the globe, you know, shaking the trees, doing deals. Um, you only have to look at the profile that Marrow has now. Um, see a Khaleesi equally, you know, pro, his um, book profiled in the Times. And I mean, I was speaking to a couple of people, not rugby people, friends who've got um, a place in South Africa, and they were saying like his profile is off the charts. Mm. So, you know, Michael is, I think, doing a great job. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see what he can bring to the uh, the Saracens table. And what about Rock Nation as a whole? Do you know anything about them and why they'd want to get involved? In well, I think, I think it's, you know, they... I think see rugby again at a bit of a tipping point. You know that I think there's a reason they're getting into it now. Um, I mean, you'll have to ask Michael, I guess, directly. But um, I think they see this as an opportunity to try to grow the sport. And you know, people like Sia and Marrow, and you know, lots of others, not just those two, um, have a profile that, frankly, you know, Bill Beaumont or somebody didn't have 30 years ago. So, um, you know, I think they maybe see that as a real opportunity for them from a business perspective. I don't suspect they're doing it from, you know, entirely altruistic motives. If they can make a really good business out of that, um, they will try to. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so. Just lastly, around the standing of Saracens now, they weren't a well-liked club before in terms of travelling around uh, different premiership grounds. You know, I played against Saracens. I was captain of Gloucester, played at Leicester as well. Um, Probably more so around the style of play, the kicking game, the defence, the wolf pack. And one of the things we spoke about when we were at Saracens as, as a player is we didn't play for the crowd. And that actually worked in our favour because when I was at Gloucester, it was all about the crowd. Leicester, it was all about Welford Road. Whereas it was a really interesting dynamic at Saracens. It was all about the internal. Uh, so there was almost like that villain aspect around Saracens when I was there. Obviously more so now. It's going to take a while to grow the reputation but how do you deal with that in, in the short term? Is it, is it a case of just letting the players get on and let them deal with, not the abuse, but do you know what I mean? The banter, if we can say that. I mean, it is borderlining abuse, yeah. banter abuse, well, kind I mean, of on that tipping if, point. Uh, you know, uh, 
everyone I've spoken to, I guess they would say this, wouldn't they? But everyone I've spoken to has been extremely nice about Saracens. Um, You've not been down to Sandy Park yet. And, uh, no, that's true. I haven't <laughs> had that privilege, but I will. Um, but, you know, through, like, when we went to all the championship games last year, you know, I went to all those away games and people were very nice about, um, you know, nice about the club and hoping we'd bounce back. You know, the people we, we you know, know from Ealing were, were very civilised about it, even though obviously we beat them quite comfortably in the end. I mean, I guess that's just part of being a successful club, right? I mean, a lot of people, you know, Man United will have a massive fan base, but loads of people who can't stand them. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess ditto Liverpool um, in the football world. So it's not something I'm sure we can do very much about, really. Um, you know, just go onto the pitch, put our best foot forward to try and <laughs> try and win games. and. Um, win games as best we can. I mean, if people want to try and play like the Harlem Globetrotters, sling it around all over the place, but then lose, are the fans going to be thrilled with that? I doubt it. Yeah, well, it's a South African thing, yeah. isn't it? The way that they play as well. Um, but we spoke about Ealing and obviously the championship. Yeah. Exeter's going to be a big one. They they seem to be the club that are most pissed off, naturally, because the finals that they were in, Tony Rowe, yeah. uh, Rob Baxter, Don Alman, just to name three kind of high-profile individuals from that club, have been outspoken on Saracens. Has that bridge been built slightly between the two clubs? Because it's important, isn't it? It is important, especially where that rugby is and the values and everything that lies around the beautiful game that we're involved in. Is that that you know? Is that an irreparable bridge? Or I, I would hope not. I mean, I guess you'd have to ask them. I mean, I um, with COVID. I mean, as I say, I started in in January twenty, and then COVID started like six weeks later. So I haven't had a chance really to um, spend very much time with um, any of the chairmen of the other clubs, um, millions of t uh, teams and Zoom calls, but not really very much in person. Um, I mean, I guess you'd have to ask them. I mean, uh, I would hope that's not any sort of irreparable thing. I mean, um, many of them um, seem extremely nice and supportive. And th there was a, definitely an element of salary cap was one thing, but it, almost got kind of overshadowed by COVID. So there was a, on the calls that you have with the other owners and chairman, a sort of um, Dunkirk spirit, you know, like the clubs are really in a bit of a mess here. As I say, nothing to do with salary cap, just to do with COVID and the, the impact on finances. So there was quite a, um, uh, a strong sense of kind of wanting to stick together. Is the club on catch-up as well? We look at the way that Harlequins, the rivals, they were rivals when I was there. You know, we had some proper ding-dongs against yeah. Harlequins. You look at the style of rugby that they're playing, yeah. the English talent that they've got, and the fact that Saracens have been in the championship, you know, the form of some of the players speaking openly. They haven't played a lot of rugby. Uh, obviously, everything that's happened with the salary cap is going to take a while for that to kind of settle down. Is the club playing catch-up on the pitch? Um, well, I mean, aside from... The last minute against Leicester, we'd have had three wins out of three. Um, and I think Mark would say not great performances, but kind of improving. So um, hopefully um, we'll continue to see that improvement. And yeah, we'll see, I guess, when we start to play. The, you know, um, I guess we haven't played any of the really Exeter or, or Quinns yet, um, but we'll see how we, we go on against them. I would hope that we have caught up rather than are catching up. I've got to ask as well, because it's kind of the headline news in rugby at the minute, and it's not as big as other news that has gone by, but around the agents and the fees and yeah. between the clubs and the PRL and the fact that the clubs are now not wanting to pay agent fees. Yeah. I don't know how well placed you are on this. I'm quite passionate, but also interested in this because, again, it's another layer 
of issues, I suppose, transparency in the game that needs to be yeah. spoken about. And yeah. the fact that basically clubs don't want to pay agent fees. They think that players need to pay them direct, which is all well and good if you're a million pound player or a half a million pound player, yeah. you can afford it. Do you know the situation around that now well, or think, where that's going? I think it's um, there's going to be um, discussions trying to reach a resolution on it. I mean, it, I think there's only so much I can say about that because it is potentially going to end up in litigation. Mm. Um, and hopefully there can be a resolution of it. But um, What's the lay of the land with it? So, so the clubs have got together effectively and say, is, is it to do with COVID? Are they, or are they... no, well, my understanding is it's driven by HMRC, mm. basically saying that if, you know, if the clubs pay, it's not really a benefit for the clubs, it's a benefit for the players. Because the clubs would be liable to pay tax on yeah. the fees that and, are then paid. Yeah, and to it's effectively the it's effectively just more pay for the players. Mm. You know, if if you pay an agent, um, if it's a hundred pound fee and the club pays fifty of it, it's effectively another fifty quid that the argument goes should have been paid by the um should have been paid by the the player himself. So lastly, where do we see the game going the next two or three years? I mean, how at the table are you with some of the, the headline discussions around global calendars, around trying to marry the leagues up? You know, yeah, I mean... The, uh, is a salary cap going to go back up, do we think, any point? Because well, I mean, five if, million if, isn't if, probably enough yeah, to compete. If they keep, I mean, if, the, if, if clubs start to become break-even slash profitable, um, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't in the fullness of time. Um, I think it takes a little while to get over COVID. You know, that was a, obviously stating the bleeding obvious, a, a huge, huge hit. But, it, you know, it's an interesting time in the game with the, you know, discussion around the 12s and women's rugby and the world calendar and the South Africans arriving. You know, there's a lot of moving parts there. Um, I certainly wouldn't claim to, uh, I'm sure you've got other people on, spoken to other people who are better qualified than me to comment on that, but there are quite a few moving parts and it'll be very interesting to see how that all um, settles down in a, in a post-COVID world. Well, brilliant, Neil. It was good to chat. No, thank you for your time, Jim. It was very entertaining. Thanks very much. Thank you.